Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, this is Carla Unseth with Building a Bridge to God's Word. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to study the book of Titus with an eye to translation issues. So last podcast, we talked about the introduction of Titus, and I noted that the aim of the translator is to be clear, accurate, and natural. So today, I'll give you another translation principle, and then we will look at Titus 1, 5 through 9. Again, I'll walk you some of, through some of the translation issues so you can see how translators think about the text, which is a little bit different than you might think about if you're studying the text. So first, our translation principle for the day is another way actually to look at the aim of the translator. So a translator wants to be clear, accurate, and natural. And another way to say this is that the translator is seeking to be faithful to the historical text and yet to communicate effectively to the new audience. So in seeking to be faithful to the historical text, you want to keep in mind that these events happened in a specific location at a specific time within a specific culture. So you can't change the text to make it look like the events happened at another time or another place. But at the same time, you need to communicate effectively. You need the new audience to understand the message as it was intended, not as their culture might interpret it. So just to give you an example of this, I worked with a translation team that was going through Numbers. And in Numbers, there's a passage explaining who Zelophad's daughters could marry. So if you don't know the story, it's a story of a man who had five daughters and no sons, and women didn't inherit. So when the people of Israel first went into the land, his daughters were concerned that their father wouldn't get any inheritance because they couldn't actually inherit any land. So they went to Moses, and he allowed the five, the five of them to inherit their father's share of the land. But in this passage, then in Numbers, they're given instructions on who they can marry. And the reason was that they wanted the land to stay within the ancestral clan, whichever tribe they were part of in Israel. But in the culture that I was working with, the cultural practice was that you never marry within your tribe. So when they read this text, they automatically interpreted it by their own culture. And so they translated it in a way that said, not you have to marry within your own tribe, but you shouldn't marry within your own tribe. So it was an honest mistake. And it, the way the grammar worked and everything, it made sense that they had this misunderstanding and that they translated it the wrong way. But it reflected their culture rather than biblical culture. So we had to add some extra information to the text so that it could be historically accurate and, and communicate clearly. So that was a way to be faithful to the historical context and to communicate effectively. So on that note, let's look at Titus and see what translation issues there are in this first part of the book. So I will read it, and I am again reading in ESV, and the reason I'm reading in ESV is that 
ESV is more of a word-for-word -word translation, so it's a little bit closer to the structure of the Greek text, though a different version. Obviously, as we're talking about translation, they are also trying to be faithful to the historical text, even if they use different words. But here's ESV, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So that is Titus 5 through 9. This passage starts right away with Paul's overall reason for the letter. As a translator, when you see something like this is why, of course you want to go back and see what it is connected to. Was the this something that came before or something that he's about to say? Because in different languages, that connector word might be different if it's referring to something before or something that's still coming. And here we can see that the reason is still coming. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that, so he's going to tell us the reason that he left Titus in Crete, which is to put things in order and appoint elders in the churches there. Now, from a text study perspective, if you're studying to understand for, for devotional purposes, to apply it to your life, we want to know things like why, what was happening, what was happening in these churches, what things was Titus supposed to be doing to be putting the churches in order. And if you do some study, you'll see that the church in Crete sounds like it was very undisciplined. People were living much like their Cretan neighbors. There, there wasn't much difference between the church and anyone else. And that the people in Crete were wild and undisciplined. And they, they drank too much. They did whatever they wanted. They were gluttonous. So the church was looking like that. And Titus had to teach the church how to live in a Christ-like manner and to put the church in order by appointing leaders. So these things aren't as important for a translator to know as far as translation goes, but it does help deepen your understanding of the text. And of course, that is always a good thing. So after this, Paul lists a variety of characteristics for elders and for overseers. If we look at verse 6, it says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now verse 8, we change to positive characteristics. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So verses 6 and 7 and 8 are lists and lists of characteristics, and that can actually be really difficult in translation because these lists of characteristics often include words that are very similar. They have slightly different connotations. So look at verse 8 where it's talking about these positive characteristics. We have self-controlled and disciplined. 
what do those mean and what's the difference between them? Uh, we also have upright and holy. What, what are the differences between those things? So this is where, as a translator, biblical lexicons, which is kind of like a dictionary, that, that really comes in handy. We can look up these words. We can see the connotations. And in fact, I have one reference book which is specifically for translators, and so they boil down the meanings in a really clear way for each of these words, and then they list it right there next to the verse, so you can see. So in this list, they're saying self-control, the word sophron, so I am reading here from translators' notes, and it says the word sophron, which the NIV has translated self-controlled, means of sound mind. It describes a person who thinks and acts wisely. Because he's in control of himself, he's able to act calmly and appropriately in every situation. Then when they talk about disciplined, they say, a church leader must be someone who can control his desires and the actions of his body. He does things in moderation and not to excess. Because the NIV has translated another word in this list by self-control, it has used disciplined here. The two Greek words are very similar in meaning, and in your translation, you may want to say he must control his own desires and actions or control his body, depending on what is natural in your language. So that's a look at this self-controlled and disciplined. What are the differences? So self-controlled is more about thinking and acting wisely, being, being thoughtful before you act. Being disciplined is a little bit more about keeping yourself from doing bad things <laughs> from from control from doing just acting on all your desires but being moderate not doing things to excess thinking before acting that's this word disciplined so interestingly the team that i work with in west africa translated self control as one who speaks the truth so we talked it through and the the translators explained to me that in their culture, a person who speaks the truth is someone who is always thinking and acting wisely and appropriately for each situation. So it really does cover that idea of this sober mind or sound mind or self-controlled. Then they translated disciplined as one who holds themselves back from evil. So again, that, that hits this idea of being somebody who has control over your body, control over your desires, not just doing whatever you want, but having that self-control and discipline. So um, that's how my team did it. But there are cases where a language doesn't have multiple words with these different nuances. They might have just one word that represents kind of this whole idea. So in that case, it is okay to just use one word or maybe to use one word, but give it two different ideas, like to say, be controlled in your mind and in your body or something like that. So there are some things you can do if there is only one word. One thing I have to say that as a translator and as someone who comes into another culture and learns their language and culture, the one thing that you have to guard against is against assuming that they don't have the complexity that our language has. And it's really easy to get into that mindset when you come in and you're learning the language and you act, you just don't know a lot of vocabulary. So it's easy to come in and feel like, well, they just don't have a very 
big vocabulary. They don't have a lot of complexity when it's really your own language learning that's holding you back. So that's just one of the things you have to guard against, that that pride that comes up in your own heart so easily. So as a translator, you're, you're constantly submitting that pride to God and also working hard to really find these words with these meanings in another language. So, all right, there's another interesting translation issue in this verse, and that's the qualification that the elder must be the husband of one wife. So the Greek simply has three words, one woman, man. And the problem here is that oh, the word for woman can be woman or wife, and the word for man can be mean man or husband. So there's two ways to interpret this. Either it's saying like he's a one woman man, like he's faithful to his wife, or it's saying he he's a husband that has only one wife, as in he's not polygamous. He doesn't have more than one wife. So interestingly here, a lot of commentators agree that this means he's faithful to his wife, but most translations actually say something that implies that he has only one wife. And you can see that here in the ESV when it says the husband of one wife. That makes it sound like he doesn't have more than one wife. So this can be a challenging translation issue, especially when you go to a culture where polygamy is the norm. What, what do we do? So translation aids, if you read some of these translators' notes that I've talked a little bit about, they suggest that you say it like he's being faithful to his wife. He is a man who is faithful to his wife. And they, they suggest that since most commentators lean that way. But they also say whichever choice you go with, you need to write the other option as a footnote. So that way people will read the first option that you've chosen, but they can also see that the other option is a possibility. So that's the main translation issue, the main two translation issues in this little passage here. Um, so I hope that that has helped you to see a little bit of what we look at as translators. And I just want to say also, we have to remember as we're going through these issues, as I said before, to do it with humility, to remember that we are, are fallible humans. And that also means that we do it with prayer. These are God's words. We want to represent, we're trying to represent what God is saying. And we want to do that as faithfully as possible. So we need to approach it with humility. We need to approach it with prayer and be asking God constantly, how should we express this? How do you want us to say this? So with that said, I hope you're enjoying this look at translation issues in Titus. And I hope you'll join us again next time as we finish off chapter one of Titus on building a bridge to God's word. <music>